0: It's good to be with you, and, and when I called Pastor Dave up about uh, coming here, and the idea was that we were going to bring a, a gentleman from India to be the speaker. He's the president of our seminary, and uh, he, he was, I filled up a whole itinerary for him. This would have been his last Sunday, but um, he couldn't get a visa to America. We can't get visas to India. He couldn't get a visa to America. So I guess it's tit for tat or something. I don't know. Um, We did leave India as missionaries uh, last year, last March. So it's just been a little over a year. And we've now been appointed, as it says there, special representatives uh, for church relations and enlistment, West Coast representatives. And uh, so our display table in the, I guess you call that the welcome room, is. that doesn't have anything about India on it, but it has a lot of literature and everything. If you're interested in going on a short-term mission trip uh, next year, now would be the time to start corresponding with Baptist missions. They have lots of opportunities, especially for young people and stuff like that. Just a little bit about what we did in India, because people say, what did you do over there? Uh, we were three years up north in the Himalayan mountains. I'm getting used to saying it the American way. We usually say Himalaya. But you say Himalayan. We were up north for three years. We studied language, and then and we were taking care of missionary kids in a boarding school. Then in 1981, we came down to Bangalore, and in Bangalore, uh, some ladies were started. A, some single ladies from our mission started a Bible hour. They were teaching in a local Bible college, and as an outreach, they started holding children's ministries and youth ministries. And in 1978, when we arrived in India. I grew up on the field. My parents were still missionaries there. They were asked to leave their part of India. They were not given permits to remain in that part of India the year we arrived in India. So these two ladies asked my parents to come down to Bangalore and help organize this work that they had started into a church. And then in 1981, we went down to help them with that. And two churches got started, all of it Grace Baptist Church and Bethel Baptist Church. All of it Grace Baptist Church as with another mission and so they've got they're doing a wonderful work they've got a bible college and they're planning other churches uh it's just not under our mission anymore which is fine we don't have any problem with that and um while my parents were on furlough I was I uh, organized Bethel Baptist Church and then my dad was pastor for a while while I was assistant pastor and then my father had to leave because of medical problems in 1987 and from that point on I, I was a pastor and from Bethel Baptist Church, we started the Chittajubai, Bethel Baptist Chittajubai, which is a Tamil language church. I would uh, preach in the afternoons to a Tamil congregation, and my deacons would translate for me, and that eventually became a church that met in the same building as the Bethel Baptist Church. And also at the same time, one of our seminary students started the Mandali, which is a Nepali language church. Uh, the people from Nepal live way up in the Himalayan mountains but they come down to the big cities like Bangalore to find work, especially as watchmen and as cooks and things like that. Sad to say, the Radha Mandali no longer exists. The, uh, the man that started it was one of our students. He died of dengue fever uh, shortly after he graduated. Then his father carried on the work for some time, and then he got old and retired. And meanwhile, there was another church, I won't mention what denomination or anything, were sending people over and stealing the members till finally there was nothing left. But for about 16 years, that church was doing really well, and uh, many Hindus were coming to know the Lord, Nepali Hindus. And then we uh, started 60 Miles Away, Emmanuel Baptist Church, in a gold-mining community, very poor people, and uh, helped get that started and organized. And then in 2007, I'm going to be talking about this church, Bethany Baptist Church, We started in 2007, and you'll see pictures of that because I'm going to use that as an illustration for my message this morning. And then Ebenezer uh, uh, Bible Baptist Church was just started last, well, a year ago, December. And uh, we pastored that for four months while the missionary pastor was on furlough. And then Rodna, we started in 2013 with one of our seminary professors, and uh, now they just this year became organized as a church. So all these churches are an outflow, Bethel Baptist Church, and from Emmanuel Baptist Church you have a church in Ramagiri, that's a village, and Chilapali. Uh, I know you can say those words real well. And um, those churches are, are in the Telugu language, in an adjoining state, very poor village people. And the work continues to go like that. It's, it's growing, and we just thank God for what he's uh, done there. Now one of the things that I enjoy about being with Baptist and missions and and we're supposed to be representing baptism missions. That's why I wore a coat and tie today. i got to really represent the mission. Next time I come to preach, I'll be like the rest of you, casual, okay? Um, baptism missions places an emphasis on church planting. And uh, that's what we did, and that's what I believe is what we are called to do. So we're going to talk about the missionary task today. And this is found in your Bibles, Acts chapter 14, okay? And I'm going to just quickly read the uh, passage we have before us. Starting in verse 19. Kind of hard to know exactly where, but to begin sometimes. But Paul is in the city of Lystra, and they were trying to make sacrifices to him and Barnabas, because they had done a miracle. And then they stopped him. And then it, it, we pick it up in verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. These were places that Paul and Barnabas had visited earlier in their ministry. And when opposition arose to their preaching, they left and came to Lystra. And now they've been uh, getting in trouble in Lystra. And some of the people from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. And and I believe he actually was dead, I don't know. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. The next day he went away with Barnabas to Derbe, and after they had preached the gospel to that city, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch. The real miracle was not that he came back to life again after being stoned. The real miracle was that the next day... He went to Derby and started preaching again. That's not me. You give me a rough time, and I'll take a few weeks' vacation. Okay, so I—that's that, a real testimony to Paul's zeal there. Okay, and then verse twenty-two: strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, <clears throat> and saying, "Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God." When they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they "...commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. They passed through Pisidia and came into Pamphylia. When they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From there they sailed to Antioch, from which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished." Remember, they were sent out by the church in Antioch, Syrian Antioch. Uh, "...when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all things that God had done with them." and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they spent a long time with the disciples. Now, in this passage, I believe we have kind of a, an outline of how a missionary is supposed to do his responsibilities on the field. It's more than just evangelism. Evangelism is the front end. Okay? Uh, now, Paul, uh, as we see in this passage, he and Barnabas did it all. They did the evangelism, they did all the other tasks that we're going to talk about this morning, and later on he had a a whole gospel team that he he sent out. He had people like uh, Titus and Timothy and Silas and others. Now, every task that we're going to talk about this morning has to be done in a way that is appropriate to the country, culture, and the need where they're going. What we do not want to do is transplant American Christian cultural Christianity. You understand what I mean by that? The way we do it over to foreign countries. Now, a lot of times there will be a lot of similarities because there's no other pattern that we know how to follow in those countries. But uh, we, I, I talked to an Indian man once who had come to the States quite a few times, and he was really enamored with our Baptist churches here in America and one time he commented to me, oh, I would just love to see Baptist churches like you have in America here in India. I, I had to zip my mouth shut. I didn't want to say anything. But I wanted to ask, why? Why would you want to do that? It's a totally different culture. And, and to tell the truth, the churches that he visited the most were over there in, in the South, you know, North and South Carolina. You guys wouldn't get along too well over there. I don't think. And they would feel out of place here. There's a cultural difference between the South and here. When my oldest son decided to get married to a girl from Virginia, I was scared. Even though I grew up in India and was from India, this was our home base on the west of Washington. I, my mother was from Tacoma. Mary's from Everett. I thought, what are we getting into, a girl from Virginia? Well, she's really great. And, and they, they were missionaries with us for 10 years in India, and now they're going to Cambodia, so that's wonderful. Okay, But you don't want to transplant your culture. You want to give them Christ. We want to give them a church that they can function in. Now, obviously, some of the churches you go to in the city that we were in, Bangalore, those people will be, the church worship service will be very similar to this. And you would feel right at home, I'm sure. But uh, every church evaluating a potential missionary... Uh, to support or hears of a returning missionary who's giving a report of his field, should ask, "Is he or she doing a ministry that follows a biblical pattern?" Now, my, my son, who's a missionary been missions now, he 's the scholar in the family, and you know he, he talks like a professor, that's what he was. He was teaching in our seminary. He says, "Dad, no, I think this might be more descriptive than prescriptive. Sounds great. And I would probably agree with him. This is more descriptive than prescriptive. It doesn't say that you have to do it like this. But a biblically derived pattern gives me confidence that God would would approve of what I'm doing. And so we can make adjustments to it, but I think this is a beautiful pattern as we get into it. Okay, so first of all, we have the evangelism of the lost. Real tough. That's the very first first step in the task. Of what a missionary is supposed to do, and when I look at this passage uh, in verse of spe- verse twenty-one, I find that there are two parts to this uh, step of evangelism. Okay, first of all, is to preach the gospel. All right, look at verse twenty-one, and after they went down to Derby, and after they had preached the gospel to that city. They preached the gospel. Now, it's very important that we know what the gospel is. And Paul gives us a very brief summary of the gospel, how that Christ died for our sins. It's not just that he died, but he died for our sins, right? That's the most important part of the gospel, is that there's a purpose to his death. He's taking the punishment for our sins, and that the scriptural proof is that it was found in the scriptures according to the scriptures and the physical proof is that he was buried you don't normally bury living people so christ died for our sins according to the scriptures you can think of isaiah you know and that he was buried physical proof and the second part to the gospel is that he rose again the scriptural proof is that it's according to the scriptures and a lot of people have a hard time finding out where that might be found in the scriptures. The scriptures we're talking about is the Old Testament. That's all Paul had at that time. And so you could point primarily to Acts chapter 16, which uh, Peter used on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, and also on, uh, in Acts chapter 13 when he's preaching to Cornelius. He refers to uh, Psalm 16 as proof of Christ's resurrection, okay, and then the second line of proof, the physical proof, is that he was seen by over five hundred people. There was a lot of eyewitnesses, and when Paul wrote uh, 1 Corinthians, there, a lot of those five hundred were still living. So if anybody had any doubts, they could start examining the witnesses, and all of them would give the same story: "Yes, I saw him alive. No, it wasn't just a ghost. It wasn't just a spirit." Thomas would say, I, I, I had the privilege, if I wanted to, but I don't think I did, uh, put my finger in his nail prints. Okay, So that's the gospel, and the gospel is, is something that delivers us from the bondage of sin. There has to be an emphasis on the fact that we are sinners and Christ died for us to save us from our sins, from the bondage of sin. He saved us from the penalty of sin. We don't have to spend eternity in hell because we trust Christ as Savior who paid the penalty for our sins. And it's also salvation unto good works. We don't don't just get saved and say now I'm saved, I can do whatever I want. We are saved to do His will. And Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 speaks of that. Okay? So The uh, gospel is... uh, Do I have something on that? Yeah, what is the gospel? Then what is the method of the gospel, of preaching the gospel? Um, Paul's usual method, if you look in verse 1 of chapter 14 of Acts, says, In Iconium they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both of Jews and Greeks. Now, This seems to be a pattern that Paul did. Whenever he went to a city, he went to a synagogue where they were worshiping. There was already a gathering of people, and these people had some biblical background. Okay, They were Jews. They had their Bible, which is our Old Testament, and so they had some foundation. And he would preach, and then as he would preach to them, Some of them would, you know, the Spirit would work in their hearts. They would respond, and they'd say, could you tell us more? And some of them would be led to the Lord, all right? And so that's that's how the gospel is proclaimed. It is proclaimed normally to a large group. We find in Acts chapter 16 in the city of Philippi that there wasn't a synagogue, apparently. So Paul went down to the river where prayers were being held. There was a group of people there. And he preached there. So the proclamation of the gospel, there seems to be some uh, blessing by God upon the public proclamation of the word of God. Especially for people who are coming together to to worship and uh, hopefully the one true God. You're going to see how this played out in the way we did it in India in just a bit here. Okay? Okay. in uh, Athens he went he was invited to speak at a public debating place. but the point is there's first of all that the public proclamation of the gospel of how to get saved and trust Jesus Christ as personal savior for the deliverance from the, the bondage and the penalty of sin and salvation for doing works that please God. and then seekers, people who are interested will come and And you deal with them individually or in small groups. Okay. The second step in evangelism, then, is make disciples. You're gonna say, Oh, I thought that's what they were doing already. Well, it's really a different step. Okay? First is the public preaching of the gospel, and now when they come to know the Lord or are interested in coming to know the Lord, you make them into disciples. (laughs) It's very important, first of all, that we understand what the word disciple means, okay? I have made up my own definition, and it goes like this. Uh, those of you that were at camp, anybody that were at camp last year Gilead? Okay, you might remember this if you remember me speaking about it, okay? A disciple of Jesus Christ is a person who trusts in Christ for eternal salvation. That's the first step, Right? And places himself under the authority of a local church so that he may continually grow in Christ's likeness through the ministry of God's people to one another. So our spiritual gifts come in. We minister to one another. It's not just the pastor preaching or the Sunday school teacher or the Bible class teacher, but everybody has a ministry gift, a spiritual gift, and we minister to one another, OK? For the mutual edification. And the purpose is to become more like Christ. The more we we become like Christ in character and in complete submission to the will of God, the more God receives the glory. The purpose of missions is not just to win the lost. Don't throw me out of church yet. Give me a chance to explain myself. Okay? I notice in one of our prayers that we're related to being a new creation in Christ Jesus. We are being transformed little by little into the image of Christ. Adam and Eve were made in the image of God, but that image was spoiled because of sin. And salvation is the process by which we begin... Salvation and then growth afterwards is the process by which we become like Christ, restoring that image. Because as Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, before they sinned, they reflected the glory of God. They were a creation, a creature in God's image, unlike all the animals that God created. And what brings glory to God is when lives are transformed and become more like the Lord Jesus Christ. None of us are there yet. We're in a process. Okay? And so discipling is a process. It's not, now I'm a disciple. Yes, you are a disciple, and you are being discipled. It's a process, okay? And so you start uh, exhibiting the character of Christ, and which you would find in the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians, and also his complete submission to the will of God. Think of the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will but your will be done. All right? So that is the the making disciples. Now, by by the way, that word making disciples is the same word, only other places used, is in the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28. Okay? And uh, and Jesus says, Go and disciple all nations. Make disciples of all nations. And so the, the beginning of that is to preach the gospel. Then, as people show interest, you make them into disciples, and it's a lifelong process. Okay, Let me just show you how we did that in India a little bit. In 2007, I asked one of our seminary professors, who was supposed to be here today and preaching instead of me, uh, if he would like to start a church in a new locality in the city of Bangalore. When we went to Bangalore in 1981, there was 3.5 million people in the city, just a small little town in India, and by the time we left last year, it had over 10 million, one of the fastest growing cities in Asia. Uh, and there was an area, a locality that I really had a burden for, it's called BTM Layout, and I had a burden for that place for maybe 20 years. And while I was pastoring Bethel Baptist Church, uh, I couldn't find anybody that I could asked to go and start a church there. And so now that I wasn't pastoring anymore, we could start. And so we went and started. First step was to find a house that we could live in and also had enough room in it to hold services because we're going to start off with a preaching of the Word of God first. And we usually, in South India, there's a lot of people who come from a so-called Christian background. They were nominal Christians, most of them hardly knew anything about the Bible, but they knew a little bit. Okay, or they might have gone to Sunday school or Vacation Bible School and heard a lot of Bible stories, but they really didn't know much about salvation. Okay, so do you see a little bit of a similarity with us preaching to a crowd like that, and Paul preaching to the Jews? Maybe a little bit. Okay, but God provided in a miraculous way, miraculous way, a house right in the middle of a militant Hindu neighborhood. And both of our neighbors said, oh, there's no problem you having services there because the previous renter was a, um, had uh, services in, his home, in that home. And so we all know this is the Christian home. Okay, so uh, there we are in our living room, dining room combined. And it's uh, not very big, but we could squeeze about 40 in there. Notice in this picture, I was standing just opposite the front door. So if you came in late, you had to look at me eyeball to eyeball, and that was embarrassing. We later changed that so we wouldn't put people ill at ease. But our first group, we had about 26 people. A lot of these people, well, some of them were uh, a seed group from our mother church. Some were people who were just uh, nominal Christians. But, you know, as you preach the word and they get excited uh, about the preaching of God's word and the fellowship of the church, they start inviting their colleagues they start inviting their friends. They start inviting their uh, uh, family, their extended families. And India has extended families. It's incredible. And so it starts to grow that way. And so after a couple of years, we had to start, uh, rent a hall, uh, not as big as this one, but we had to move out of our living room, dining room. We just didn't have room anymore. But it begins with the preaching of God's word and, and helping a core group there, and from there we would do the discipling, we would have small Bible studies, and I developed a course of, uh, for a Bible study, it's supposed to last six weeks, but it's called Introduction to Biblical Christianity. It was basically a doctrinal course. Uh, a course. Some people would come to me and say, you know, we'd like to know more, or I'd go to them and say, hey, you've been coming for a few weeks, would you like to know what it really is to be a Christian, what the Bible has to say about it? Oh, yeah, I'd like to. So either they'd meet in our home, or I'd go to their home, or one of our believers would open up their home and, and be the host, and I'd go and conduct it. It's supposed to be six weeks. usually went about 10 to 12 weeks because they'd get into it. And we had more people while well, I was pastoring Bethel Baptist Church and also these churches that I helped start. More people come to the Lord through this evangelistic Bible study than almost any other way. But they got interested through the preaching of the word and the fellowship of the church okay and so you bring them to a decision for christ and then eventually they take baptism and church membership there are other ways of doing evangelism our mission was very much involved in medical evangelism but medical evangelism always led to church planting my parents uh, began their work in india on a leprosy colony we had a And we were trying to make it an agricultural leprosy colony. They grew a lot of rice and a lot of other things, sugar cane and things, and um, trying to make it self-sufficient through agriculture, but the government worked against us on that, and it never worked out. But um, uh, a Hindu man attended the devotions that we would have every day in the outpatient clinic, and he finally got saved after a long period of time, and he, he was a real student of the Word of God, uh, and eventually he became our first ordained pastor, and he became the pastor of the church in the leprosy colony, Mukunda Leprosy Colony Baptist Church, long title. And, um, and he and my dad would go and visit villages around there, and they started 20 churches in villages all around this leprosy colony. It was way out in the jungle. Um, at camp, I told a few jungle stories, and you sent the kids out, so I couldn't tell them this morning. Okay. But medical evangelism was the purpose of that is to start churches. It isn't an end to itself. Um, village evangelism, literature ministries, all lend for towards establishment of church. By the way, on our table there is a new advance magazine from Baptist Missions, and it's all about our Bible translation. Uh, department of our baptist missions. it is an excellent read uh they they send this out quarterly this advance magazine and this one's devoted to our bibles international bible translation and i think this is the best one they've ever put out and uh, pick it up it's free you don't have to pay me anything for it unless you want to but um it's on the table there and if we run out we can always get a few more out i think all right So the main point is to preach in a group setting where no one is singled out and uh, trust the Spirit to work in the hearts and then when you have people who show interest, you make them into disciples by teaching them more about Christ. Okay, second step. Edification of believers. Edification of believers. Go down to verse 22 now. And this again has two steps. First one is strengthen, they strengthen the souls of the disciples. They make their return journey back to the cities they had already visited, back to where they had already made disciples, and people were disciple, being discipled, and they were in that process. And so they go back, and the first step is to take those believers and strengthen the souls. The word strengthen there means to place firmly upon. Now, there's only one way to strengthen people in their faith, and that's through the teaching and preaching of God's Word. Not only do we preach God's Word to lead people to salvation or to introduce Christ to them, but we preach God's Word to strengthen them, to build them up in the faith, to make them firm in their faith. Okay, And so uh, he would go back and he would preach the whole counsel of God. Uh, As we find in Acts chapter 20. And second part of the edification is encouraging them. Do we have that up there? Encouraging them. This is exhortation. It's from the same root word that you find for the ministry of the Holy Spirit in John's gospel. Parakletos, one who comes alongside. One who encourages. One who comforts. And so uh, Paul doesn't give them a false message. We hear too much of that on, on uh, evangelistic TV, right? Christian TV, uh, where you, you come to Jesus and you're, he'll take care of all your problems. Uh, if you're not healthy and wealthy and wise, you, you, you don't have enough faith. That's not the gospel. That's not the way we build people up uh, to make them feel bad when bad things go, happen to them. Because bad things do happen. In this world, you will have tribulation, Jesus said. And Paul didn't try to pull the wool over their eyes. He, he shares with them, and he says, you're a Christian now, and some of them were already experiencing it. They saw Paul being persecuted. Some of them saw Paul stoned to death. He says, but this is worth it to trust Jesus Christ because it gives you the hope of eternal life. And he encourages them to stand true to the Lord Jesus in the face of persecution and suffering through many tribulations. And this is very important in our ministry in India because when people come to know Christ as personal Savior, they get kicked out of their families. We had a Hindu girl that came to know the Lord coming to one of our churches, and in the middle of the worship service, her parents came and dragged her out of church. And took her home and locked her inside and wouldn't let her out. Through much prayer, she's finally let out, allowed to return to church, and she's baptized. And a member of that church. But that's not always the case. And uh, when they talked to her, they said, you know, are you going to give up your walk with the Lord? Absolutely not. She was firm. And she stuck it out. Her parents had signed a pledge that the family would never forsake Hinduism. And so this was a loss of faith to the father who had signed that pledge. This is going on in India today. We've, we've had to have police stationed outside of the worship service so that uh, some people wouldn't come and attack us. It's happening. So people need to be encouraged. Well, this is... Typical stuff that you do here in America, everywhere around the world. You just start having all kinds of opportunities to teach and to instruct in the Word of God. One of the areas that is really vitally necessary is in what is a Christian home. What does the Bible teach about how a husband should be, how a wife should be, how children should act? And so here's a couple's fellowship. Um, this couple right here—they're from Hindu background. They're from, uh, from the state south of us. They, they came to know the Lord, but they didn't have any idea what it is to be a Christian family. So we had a couple's fellowship. This other couple, they're Hindus from Nepal. He's a student of ours in our seminary. And even though he's a seminary student and all, they had no idea how to live out a Christian life within a Christian home. We take some things so much for granted, you know. So couples fellowship has been one of the great means for us to strengthen and to encourage people in their faith. Um, Men's breakfasts You probably can't tell too well, but that's curry for breakfast. Kind of good, okay? Give you heartburn for the rest of the day. But um, when we get to heaven and you're looking for me, I'll be in the Indian section having my curry, Okay. Uh, and a time of men getting together to study the Bible and pray. And they really get into it. Okay, That encourages the men. Uh, Sunday school, uh, now I'm not opposite the door anymore, and uh, Sunday school was met in our kitchen, you know, and, and used some of our seminary students to teach the kids and stuff like that. Sunday school's a great place. Um, in India, we, we were quite traditional in the first church we started. We had a Sunday school, we had a morning worship, evening worship, prayer meeting, men's breakfast, ladies' meeting at once a month, and uh, children's ministry. And I always felt like if I didn't have four times a week that I could minister the word of God, I wouldn't be doing those people's service. That means they had to come out for it. Midweek prayer service was not just a little simple little look in the word, it was, that's where I put most of my effort into it because I figure if people take the time to come out to the prayer meeting after work, these people are sincere and so I better give them something worthwhile. And uh, I had one gentleman say, Pastor, could you give us more Bible study and stuff? Can you believe it? And I finally had to say, well, you know, if you come regularly to all the services within five years, you'll have a good grasp of the Bible. He did has a great grasp of the Bible, and uh, he became one of our deacons and leaders in the church. All right, what else do we have here? Oh, camps and retreats and things like that, places where there can be encouragement and fellowship and instruction from God's word. Indians like to take selfies too. Some things are the same world over. Okay? Then the third step, you'll get down to verse 23 of 14. What are we doing here? i got to quit, don't I? When they had appointed elders for them in every church, they prayed with fasting and they commended them to the Lord in whom they believed. Now, they appointed elders. This is the establishment of the church. It's very important to have a church established so that discipling can continue. Okay. Now, the method, we're not going to worry about how they appointed and how, what the way it was done. Every church has their own way of doing it. Okay. And uh, then it does imply some kind of organization so that evangelism and edification may continue on indigenously. Paul and Barnabas couldn't stay there. They had, to go, they had an itinerant ministry to all these different places. So they left people behind in a church setting with pastors, elders, whatever you want to call them. And the question arises, where would you find qualified people to be elders? I hear people coming out to India and they have a two-week evangelistic ministry and they say, we established 12 churches in two weeks, praise the Lord. And I say, where did you get the pastors for those 12 churches? I don't know. Somehow they'll manage. To be a pastor, you have to know the Word of God. One of the qualifications for a pastor is able, able to teach. Having some kind of wisdom in the Word. Where did they get pastors from? Very easy. God, in his great plan, sovereign plan, said that he sent Jesus at the fullness of time, born of a woman made under the law. The fullness of time was when the Roman Empire ruled most of the known world at that time, and the, there was peace, kind of, and the Jews were scattered, and wherever they settled in any city, they formed a synagogue. In the synagogue, they would read, the law, the Old Testament. They didn't call it Old Testament. It was the Testament, okay? And, uh, and there were elders in the synagogue and some of those elders would get saved. Even if there weren't an elder that got saved, people would be so well-versed in scripture, they would be able to take up eldership positions within the new church. We find in Corinth that the elder of the synagogue got saved and probably, probably became the pastor of the new church, See? That was in God's wisdom, and that worked out real well. But what about us? Well, let's just quickly look at some stuff here. Our church that started in 2007, by March of 2010, we were ready to constitute as a church. Here they are, pastors holding up the uh, charter membership list. Just a small group. But to start a church in just three years in India is is really something. It's very difficult because people really have to count the cost to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. In September of that year, we were able to organize the church completely. They called it Bethany Baptist Church before you might have seen the sign, Divya Christian Fellowship. They named the church themselves. We elected elders, or pastor, and deacons. And um, we had a Commissioning service for them. Here's a dedicatory prayer for them by September of 2010, and they were established as a church. Okay? And I had the privilege the last four years of continuing to preach in the evening services while I was helping out at one of the other churches and also teaching in the seminary, and now that church is up to 200 people. And that's just, you know, within nine, ten years, it's gotten up like that. Uh, tremendous what God has done in that place. And people are coming from all over, and they come to the church, they hear the word of God, and then they're discipled and taught more about Christ. All right? So the, the elders that came from the synagogues, all they had to do was be taught how the scriptures pointed to Christ. And when they got that, then they got the key to the whole program of God, right? Once they understood how the scriptures pointed to Jesus then they were well prepared to be the elders. Uh, The the pastor of this church is uh, the president of our seminary, uh, seminary trained, so we already had somebody ready to be the pastor when we got it organized. But where do you find pastors for the new congregations in India? This is where we started a seminary back in 1982. It was an extension seminary from Northwest Baptist Seminary, and then in 1998, we went independent, became the Baptist Seminary of South India. Uh, we're renting this building, um, and we've had, uh, and that building contains everything: dorms, uh, uh, dining, offices, library, everything. Okay, and we've got graduates from all over India, Bangladesh, Nepal, and Burma. Uh, here's a young man that uh, came from Northeast India near where I grew up on the leprosy colony, and he wants to go back and be a, a missionary to the city that was very near to our leprosy colony. And Beth, Bethany Baptist Church, which we organized just back in 2010, is supporting him. And so these churches that I showed you in the very beginning of my message this morning uh, are supporting some of the, Bapt, the uh, graduates of our seminary into various places. Just take a look at that. I don't know if you can read the writing back where you are, but there are more people living inside this circle than outside of it. In all the world, right there with India, China, and Southeast Asia, there are more people living right there than all the rest of the world combined. And our seminary is right there. We, we have bought property, but we do not have a place uh, we don't have the money to put the building up. And so we want to have about 20,000 square feet of floor space on four stories and um, completely contained in one building. And so we're we're trying to raise money for that as well. Uh, we have a man in Maryland who has offered to match $50,000. Uh, you might see his commercial on television, Cosamine. Anybody recognize that? Even uh, Costco is selling that now. It's a supplement for dogs with joint problems. He's, he's uh, in the pharmacist industry, and he's also got one for humans. What's that called? It's not cosamine. Glucosamine. Glucosamine, yeah. Dr. Henderson, he's promised to give us $50,000 if we can raise $50,000. We have about 12000 13000 raised towards that. But eventually, that building's going to cost, they say, up to $800,000. I have no idea where that money's going to come from, but the Lord has always provided. But this seminary, and we're not the only one. There's plenty of other seminaries. We're located down here, and our graduates are from here and all around here, down south. And some of our Burmese graduates go up into China. We're strategically placed to reach the most Populated area of the planet, and uh, appreciate your prayers for that seminary. But that's the missionary task. You have evangelism, edification, and then uh, establishment of the church. And the last thing is they went back to their home church and reported. And I just want to point out a couple of things here for you. Uh, it says in that in the there, it says. They began to report all that God had done through them. When you have a, church, a missionary that your church supports, you make sure that you give him plenty of time to tell all that God has done. His heart is full. And then it says in verse 28, and they spend a long time with the disciples. You see, if you want to be a real mission-minded church, you've got to allow the missionaries you support to come and give Give them plenty of time to just share their heart. Just like Paul and Barnabas did when they came back. And you will catch their burden. You will catch their vision. And as you have a real mission mindset, you will see your church flourish in a wonderful way. That's God's task for us. Shall we bow in prayer? Father, thank you for giving me this opportunity to minister to First Baptist Church in Ferndale. Thank you for these wonderful people, for the ministry that they've carried on here faithfully for many, many years. We do pray for Pastor Dave and Sue as they embark upon a new ministry. We pray for the church here that they would find uh, someone that can be a good pastor for them, uh, an interim pastor in the meanwhile. We pray, Father, that the ministry of bringing people to Christ and to strengthening believers to be more Christ-like would continue on unabated, even though they are having this uh, little bit of a setback in lack of pastoral leadership. Lord, we pray your blessing upon the elders and deacons of the church who are in leadership position, that you would just give them much wisdom and guidance as they uh, lead the church forward in the months ahead. And we thank you again for all that you're doing in this place, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.